episode 250 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with psychologist Dr. Alan Goodwin. Radio team, welcome along to episode 250 of the Bevan James Isle Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Got a really cool interview today, actually. Um, I've got an interview with a psychologist by the name of Dr. Alan Goodwin. Um, and it was, it was really cool, you know, he's, he's obviously very... Um, you know, very knowledgeable man in this area, but we had some really cool, just a really cool discussion. And it's just some nuggets he's sitting there. And, and I can't even remember, I did this interview about 10 days ago, so I can't actually remember what nuggets hit me really, really well. But he just, a couple of statements he said, and I just thought, wow, that, that's really insightful statement. So I think you got to, we talk about, you know, health and fitness. And interestingly, he's, he's written a book on kind of the emotional journey of dealing with like, plastic surgery he's based in LA so it was really interesting having a discussion around this stuff as well so we're putting that interview up pretty quickly I'm not going to go into too much detail into other things today uh just because the interview is quite long but I do I will say one thing um I had another example and, and I'm just going to reinforce something I've said many times before but this morning I was coaching my running group got this lovely girl who's joined our group about six months ago has ran Started with our 5k groups, done the program a few times now. It's probably running about 8 to 10k now. And I just got her in a moment of tears. And I got her in a moment of tears. And this is what happens as a coach, especially in, in movement. Well, I suppose in all areas, if you're a coach, is that sometimes you get people in their vulnerable moment. And I I, I, I could see she wasn't in a good place. And I just went up to her and said, hey, 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 how are you? And she kind of broke down into tears. And without giving me too much detail you could just she just expressed that life's really tough right now and she's got a lot on her plate she's feeling a lot of pressure and it running just makes her feel more pressure and, and you know it's making her feel that she's failing and that she's not turning up the sessions because she's failing and so on and so on and so on and I did the reflection reflective listening thing I just took a moment and so I listened to what she was telling me and then I just kind of communicated back to her was this what you're experiencing? And, and, and if this is what you're experiencing, is this what it's creating? And she said, yes. And I said, well, can I give you some advice? And the advice was, and again, I've, I've said this a million times, but it's just really on my mind right now, is right now you need to shift your why for your running. Because right now you've got a lot on your plate. I think she's studying, so obviously studies pretty full on. You've got a lot on your plate. You've got a lot of pressure in life. And if you put pressure on performance in running right now, in a time when you're mentally fatigued and, and time precious, your running's not going to be an enjoyable thing. And what's really important right now is you want to keep your running in because it's actually just about your mental health. Like it's a great stress relief. It makes you feel good about yourself. It makes you feel you're doing things that are, that are healthy for you. And so I said to her, in this moment, this is not a performance time for running. Your main job right now is to shift your why for your running. And your why for your running is turning up for you to have a moment in your day for mental health. And, and it was really fascinating because it's really fascinating when you give good advice. Because when you give good advice, you see a shift in a person. Like it really is true, isn't it? And like, you know, two minutes earlier, I was giving a hug, you know, and just kind of trying to nurture her through a tough moment. And then through showing some understanding and showing some level of trust in me understanding the situation and then providing advice that, that connected, 
Because as I said it to her, you could tell by the end of the conversation just that that, that representation of, of the state she was in was completely different. And, you know, and, and she kind of walked away, kind of jogged off with a bit of a smile on her face and, she, you know, she was in a much better space. And I just think it's a really important thing because uh, why is this important right now? Well, we're going into a pressure time of year, particularly if you're in, like, my part of the world. Like, going into Christmas is a pressure time of year. And exercise often falls away because we feel we suck at it at this time of year. And I just think sometimes in life, there's times for performance. You know, with exercise, there is times when you're aiming for a goal and you do just need to sharpen up. You know, you do need to use good motivational tools. And if you are being a bit slack, you need to kind of, you know, harden up and work through it. But there are times in life where you go, you know what, putting that performance aspect on my athletic or my movement patterns or my movement side of my life is not the wisest thing for me to do. And all I need from exercise is the, the mental benefits of it. Like, going back to this girl I was talking to this morning, if she didn't exercise through this time, it's almost a harder way through it. Because life's creating pressure for her, and if she wasn't exercising, she doesn't need a healthy stress release. She, you know, she may, you know, um, get more stressed. There may, she may put weight on, I don't know if she's, but she's not the kind of girl who looked like she was struggling with weight, but you know what I mean? Like, there's a cost to not exercising. If we can keep exercising at a time of, of high pressure then you'll manage the high-pressure moments better. And so, again, I, I guarantee I've talked about this on the show a lot of the times, but it's just a really important thing to reinforce because it's quite kind of present in my mind right now. If you're in a place where you're finding you're falling away from exercise because life is full-on and life's coming with you with a lot of pressure and a lot of kind of demands in lots of different areas, and then you think about exercise and it just feels like high-pressure as well, change your why. My wife exercise right now is just my mental health. And as I said before, with this girl, as soon as I gave that to her, you could just see a shift in, in, in why she thinks, you know, you could just see a shift in her in her state. And so it's just something to think about. So I want, again, I'm not going to spend too much on talking about other things before we get into today's interview because it's a really cool interview. But I just thought I'd share that with you um, because it's kind of on my mind. Now, before I put the interview on, I am going to say a big thank you to my patrons. These are people who give some of their hard-earned money my way every time I release an episode of the show. Um, and when you become a patron, you get a cool nickname. So I haven't had many new patrons recently. So if you've been thinking about becoming a patron, go on, do it. All you need to do is go to my website, bevanjamesisles.com, and go to support podcast support me go through the process and every time i release the show you, you basically just donate as much as you want to towards the show these are some of the people who have become patrons we've got darren dangerous busain we've got sarah the oracle hill we've got scott akadaka young david the unstoppable storm hail and pal the mystery these are oh, and also karina lifting higher hirschman karina just did a marathon over in, in a I think in Germany, and she's going to New York to do a marathon soon as well. So love your work, Karina. Uh, also, if you enjoy my work and you haven't got my new book, uh, I Will Make You Passionate About Exercise, you can check that out at Passion About Exercise. Anyway, let's get into my interview with Dr. Alan Goodwin. Okay, team... I'm very excited to have Dr. Alan Goodwin on the show. He is a man who's doing some really important work around personal coaching, uh, psychology, and all this kind of important stuff around helping people be higher level selves. So welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I'm really happy to be here, Bevan. So maybe just give me a bit of a, your own background. Tell me a bit about yourself. 
Uh, well, I started out as an attorney. Um, most of my clients are surprised to hear that. <laughs> it's probably a good thing. <laughs> They're not uh, looking for an attorney when they come to a psychologist. But um, I, I practice a form of mindfulness-based uh, cognitive behavioral psychotherapy. Um, I earned a doctorate in, in psychology, in counseling psychology, after um, becoming an attorney. And so anyway, my practice is, um, my approach is active, it's strengths-based, it's goal-directed, and um, so we, we blend warmth and humor with really a, an examination of the way that, that a person's thoughts and feelings and behaviors are all causing one another all the time. And you can throw in physical states because those also interact with your thoughts and the way that you're feeling and behaving. And that really is what uh, goal-focused uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is about. Can, can I ask why the switch in career? Um, you know, uh, um, a lot of people think that there's a big difference between the two. And of course, in a lot of ways, there, there, there are differences. But a lot of people who become attorneys are really looking to help others. Um, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of attorneys really can be, you know, very uh, positive influences on people's lives. Um, but, you know, as a psychologist, you're doing a very different kind of helping. And um, the more I, I practiced, uh, really, even in, in law school, the more I thought about it, the more I was drawn to the idea of directly working with people. I had a, an experience with a particular client, I remember, that was sort of like a watershed event that led me to think, all right, listen, you, talking to myself, your goal here as a lawyer is really not what you're most interested in. You know, I was much, much more interested in why this uh, person was still so stuck um, in the pain that they were feeling because of a relationship that ended, okay. um, that came up in the deposition. Uh, then I was in, you know, getting at the facts and the information I needed to get at for the purpose of the deposition. Was it was so, an interesting moment in your career because you know you see it seems like you kind of found the real thing that you wanted to kind of solve and you know with your career and um but you, you know you obviously established yourself as a lawyer you're doing pretty well um was that a hard moment to to make that switch or was it kind of so obvious you just went down that pathway? Yeah, that's a really insightful question. It, it, I made the switch very early on in my career. It's insightful that you ask it because um, there were so many attorneys that I knew who were farther along in their career, who sort of, you know, on the side would say, you know, I've got, you know, house payments and obligations for myself and my family. I couldn't make the move, but I would make a move now if I could. Mm. And I'm not saying all attorneys are unhappy with their career, but mm. being early in my career um, definitely opened up the door in a way that it probably wouldn't have if I'd waited. And that's why I thought I need to move on this if I'm going to do it. Mm, well, it was pretty. It's interesting. I actually worked with a lawyer a few years ago, and she was she was actually over her career. She's a very successful lawyer, but she was over her career. Um, but she was in this trap of of creating the financial burden of staying in her career because she was so dissatisfied in her career. Buying was kind of how she only got satisfaction in life, and she was literally talking about how she hated her career, and then she was just buying this house with millions of dollars, which is basically keeping her in debt in the career. And there was this kind of conflict of what's giving my emotional fulfillment right now, which is ultimately trapping me in a life that I don't necessarily enjoy. It was really interesting. I imagine that happens a lot, or you know, not as you said, not all lawyers are unhappy, but I can imagine it happens a lot in industries where you get paid a lot for something that maybe you no longer love. Yeah, it, I mean, you described it, and. 
And, um, you know, people get stuck in certain ways of being uh, that also keep them stuck, you know, keep them detached from mm -hmm. their emotions and from an awareness of what would bring them joy and um, really an awareness that it's possible, really. So in your introduction, you talked about the type of kind of treatment you or the way you approach the treatment the people you're working with. So can you give us a bit more detail around the foundation of what that is? Yeah, sure. Um, it's really pretty straightforward. And I say this to clients because it's important um, for our tools to be simple because changing really isn't simple. That's when it gets complicated. Uh, but the but my job is to make it um, make the process uh, very clear. Um, and I try to do that in, in lots of ways. I, I hope you'll get a sense of that when we talk. But um, the, the, um, the broad uh, uh, foundation of the work is the idea that the way that you think, in other words, how you interpret your experiences, the way people treat you, how you behave, your performance level, the way that you think um, causes certain feelings in you. And certain feelings in you also tend to cause certain interpretations, the way that you think. So they cause each other, and both of those are interacting in a causal way with how you behave. So what I uh, suggest to clients is you think of a behavioral intervention like the Nike marketing line, just do it. Mm -hmm. um, when I'm talking about behaviors, I'm referring to anything that just by virtue of doing it, it tends to have either a positive or a negative effect on how you feel and how you think. So nutrition exercise, things like meditation, um, you know, of course, substance, uh, substance use, all of these can have a direct effect, whether you want them to or not, on how you feel and think. And your physical states you can throw in because, you know, for instance, if I'm feeling nervous, I may have an upset stomach or a headache. And uh, on the converse, I may have a headache or an upset stomach, and that leads to certain feelings and thought patterns. And so they all four really interact with one another, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and physical states. Thoughts, feelings, behaviors. And can you give us a really good example of what typically, a typical example of what that would look like in somebody's life? Um, okay. Um, somebody with uh, anxiety about uh, going out in public and not looking good enough and okay. having a bad okay. hair day or, or whatever it might be, um, might not go out into public because they are thinking that they need people to view them a certain way. And so their behavior is affected. They, they don't go out or they excessively um, manage their appearance um, because of the thoughts that they have and the really powerful feelings that they attach to their thoughts. So in other words, the thought isn't just, I want people to you know, admire the way that I look. Um, the thought is I need people to think of me and view me a certain way and feel a certain way about me when they see me. Mm -hmm. And if I don't have that, it will be unacceptable to me. And so you see how that way of thinking triggers a very intense feeling state, which then leads to, you know, the behaviors of like, you know, excessively um, uh, um, being careful about how you look or being a shut in, you know, staying at home because you don't want anyone to see you. So, so I suppose when you're working with a client, because you know there's kind of a multi-dimensional approach to this, isn't there? Because you are looking at those four different components. What were they going to was feeling, behaviors, state? What, what were the four? Oh, uh, it's the way that you feel, yeah. the way that you think, the way that you behave, and your physical feeling states, your your body, how your body feels. 
Okay. And so when you're someone comes to you, because you know, there's a lot there, isn't there, when you kind of break down the kind of the those different areas and what they represent and how much there is to all those different areas. What, what, what's your start point? Oh, um, well, we start with what's bringing them to me um, in, the, in the initial session. I'm just finding out um, what's causing them to contact me. And, um, and at the same time, what I'm trying to understand is who they are. So in goal-directed uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, we do look at the past, but we're really limiting how much we look to the past. It's not a sort of aimless um, uh, uh, storytelling about the past. Um, what it is, is really trying to understand how certain patterns of placing certain demands on the world and on yourself began. And so your relationships with your family members are important and past romantic relationships in your life are important. And um, any successes or, or failures or challenges you've confronted, all of these contribute to, you know, forming the person that you are today. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we're looking at. These patterned ways that get repeated of uh, thinking certain ways and feeling and uh, behaving. And from there, so from there, the process is getting a deep understanding of, of what's created where they are right now. And you're saying it's more of a goal directed. So then it's more about kind of setting a pathway of where we're trying to point you towards and then building a set of tools and structures around how they progress towards that. Yeah, exactly. It's it's pretty analytical. So for instance, the, the book that I've written um, is really directed at a particular kind of anxiety. It's a it's about anxiety connected to cosmetic procedures, but it's related to what we were just talking about because um, the, the pressure to look a certain way, especially with social media, mm. is so intense for, for so many people. Mm. Um, what we would try to do is examine, um, for instance, a good example, um, you hear people talk about expectations you know, don't, don't have expectations in life and then you'll sort of, you know, you'll be happy. Yeah. But really, um, that's helpful, but it'd be more helpful and I think more precise if what we were to identify is not expectations, but demands. So if someone goes out in public, um, it's, you know, perfectly understandable for them to want and even expect people to treat them with kindness. Well, probably not expect because there will be people who, won't be kind because of yeah. their own problems. Yeah. But to want it, the problem is um, the problem comes about when people demand it, whether they realize it or not. They're really going out, and they're going out with a with a a thinking state that people must treat me a certain way, must react to me a certain way. So you see how that's something we can you know we can totally grab onto and look at um, what's what's leading you to you know, walk around with that sort of rule inside you that you're enforcing on people in your own mind. Mm. And why is it damaging? Why is it, why is it, why is it the, the demand? Why does that create problems? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, that's really key. And, and um, one of the ways that we uh, can work, uh, I think, constructively with this is by using compassion. Um, mm. If we think of so the answer to your question is because other people can't do it. A lot of, a lot of other people, some people so, can do it. So you're going to be set up for failure, basically. You're going to be set up for disappointment or you know those, those negative emotions you, you kind of talk about. Exactly. Yeah. And 
And if you, so, so the question is, well, how do you cut them slack? How do you cut those other people um, slack? How do you, how do you be, be um, accepting of them treating you badly? And one way is the tool of compassion. If we think of compassion, um, not just as like niceness, um, but really as something different. If we think of compassion as viewing another person within the context of their struggle, and we don't take their bad behavior toward us so personally. Mm, because I can have more sympathy for who they are in that situation, which allows me not to take so much ownership upon myself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like if someone's walking toward you with a cane and, you know, their cane slips on the pavement as they approach you and they fall into you, you don't get angry with them. Yeah. You know, yeah. because their limitation is right in front of you. And so another way of thinking of compassion is about broadening our definition of limitations. We are all walking around with limitations all the time that are affecting our behavior. Mm. What what about when you get people who are malicious to you? You know, like, because there are people in our lives who are actually just damaging and and deliberately damaging towards us. Does compassion help there? Like, like, I'm not, not, you know, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good question. Because, because you know, you do get those people, don't you, where you get people who, uh, you know, are deeply unhappy and deeply dissatisfied within themselves, but they are just trying to bring you down. And and, and a lot of people, you know, I often think, you know, a lot of the, the world's problems could be solved with greater, deeper communication skills and understanding and all this kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of people, a lot of their stress in life is how other people treat them. Um, and so, you know, and sometimes it is just how you're interpreting it and maybe, that, you know, that compassion type of thinking, but then sometimes there is someone who is actually just a, quite a horrible person. Um, and so how do you approach it when it's kind of of that level? So, yeah, I mean, that's really key and it's a really important question. So um, one thing, not to pick at your words, but I do the same thing and, yeah. and this illustrative illustrative of the issue, um, they one thing we can say is they they really aren't a horrible person. Okay. They are a horribly unhappy person. Okay. And, and those people, um, we are not going to be able to convert or it's unlikely. And anyway, it's not our job to convert them. And in having compassion for them, uh, that doesn't mean we need to engage with them. Mm-hmm. We may want to keep away from them. We may want to set limits with them if they're in our lives and maybe cut them out of our lives. It's, it's interesting with that one with family members, isn't it? Um, you know, because you do get those and, and family members can often touch nerves more than anything else. But you, you know, I've known people over my life who literally have that family member and they feel their obligation to blood. If you know what I mean, they feel that, that they should keep their presence in their life, even though it's actually not a good thing for that person. It's a, that's quite a hard conflict, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it really raises difficult questions, especially around now. Um, people think a lot in the U.S. about the holidays and, well, I guess everywhere yeah. Christmas is celebrated and, um, you know, getting together with family and, you know, having political discussions and yeah. all sorts of situations where, you know, really ugly interactions can can happen and what you do about that. And 
you know, when do you cut someone out of your life who's a family member? That's a much more difficult um, mm. question. Wait, wait, so, so compassion is one of the tools that you try to teach people. You, you, you seem like meditation is a big part of your process as well. So talk us through why you feel that's important and how you kind of approach that. Because I've been a meditator for, I've meditated since I've been 19 and I've, I've done it every day and I'm now 45. Um, and it's something, it's one of those things that I think deep, everyone understands that would bring value to their life. But the application is really hard for people to do. And so, you know, actually did the habit of doing it day in, day out. Um, so why do you feel it's an important part of, of this progression of taking someone to move forward? And how do you help people to actually get into that kind of long-term habit of doing it? Okay. So great. Um, so mindfulness is key. And you can hear um, from what we've been talking about so far, um, we can describe what we've been doing as being mindful of mm -hmm. how we're experiencing um, other people and ourselves in the world, right? So mm -hmm. the way someone is treating me, um, I can be mindful of that. I can also be, you know, mindful, in other words, aware of how I'm reacting to it, what I'm demanding of that other person. Um, I can see them as really struggling and causing them to behave really badly and I can still detach from them. And um, meditation is a really powerful tool. The problem is it's usually thought of as a tool for relaxation. And the reason I say that's a problem is because it causes people to um, undervalue it. The way that I encourage clients to think about meditation and the reason that I would talk with them about it is not first because it's an opportunity for them to stop and relax because it's oftentimes not relaxing for people. They feel like they're failing at mm. it. Their mind is so active. And it's very often people will say, you know, I'm not one of those people who can meditate. I've, I've got too active a mind. And what they're misunderstanding is that, you know, what they have is a human mind. The human mind is really active. Mm. And what we're doing in meditating first is not relaxing. The first thing we're doing is staying present with ourselves, with our active mind, which means all of our perceptions, the reactions that I'm having to the things I'm hearing and seeing and smelling and feeling and tasting in that moment and, and thinking all of the thoughts that I'm having. So if you are meditating, what you're trying to do is be mindful. In other words, be aware of all of that because meditation is a practice of staying it's about staying with all of it you know there's a there's a joke what did the zen monk say to the hot dog salesman make me one with everything okay nice yeah so you know the, the idea is of course you wouldn't the zen monk wouldn't order the hot dog <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe you know <laughs> <laughs> but um but you know it's about uh being being part of all of it all of whatever you're seeing hearing thinking feeling and the problem that we're working on combating when we meditate is our tendency to reject the things that we don't want in our presence so you so, feel this is really important because it helps us to have a greater awareness of actually what we're facing right now yeah, I mean, you, that's the same thing you're going to have at the dinner table with your uncle who's always, you know, provocative and obnoxious and starting fights. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want him to be saying the things that he says, but somehow 
you've got to integrate that into your you know existence that's what we're practicing when we meditate and if you do it long enough you probably experience this um, the objective is ultimately to get to a point where you are you do feel more calm and relaxed because you are coexisting in a more friendly way with all the things around you the things you like and the things you really don't like yeah, it's interesting that we had earthquakes here in Christchurch about 12 years ago, and uh, a good friend of mine was a manager of the, the, a company that I was working with at the time, and um, she said she phoned about 50 people at that time um, just because she was a caring manager, and she said I was the only one who seemed calm and relaxed through the experience. Now, you know, like it was, it was just really interesting, and, and she actually learned the way that I meditate about five years later. And she said, once she learned that she kind of understood maybe why I was able to be in that place. Now I'm not far from perfect, but I definitely feel it, it, that kind of equilibrium of self and that kind of awareness of how to be healthy as an overall being is it's a big tool in my life for sure. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised. It's, it's complicated this stuff we're talking about because there are also individual differences. And, you know, one of the things that, we wind up talking about in psychotherapy is, you know, sort of type A or type B personality type. Mm. Um, more intense people um, oftentimes feel like they're especially not, you know, the type person who can benefit from meditation. And I think it's important to um, to help those people see that they they don't have to become, you know, uh, a, yeah. a quiet Lama. <laughs> I'm sorry? Like the Dalai Lama or different personality is kind of what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, right, right. You you will evolve, but that doesn't mean you're going to evolve into a different type of of, of person. So you talk about compassion, you talk about the kind of the value of of the meditation, that mindfulness, which creates better awareness so we can make better choices. Whatever kind of tools are really important in helping people progress around these areas? Well, you know, self-compassion is related to compassion. And so having some patience and willingness to look at yourself and to see that change requires a process. Mm. Uh, It requires really understanding why uh, these patterns keep um, re-emerging. And so, you know, we use metaphors and and, uh, anything that will help um, explain what this person's struggle is. And so I would say patience with themselves and the process is really important. That's it. That's often the biggest problem in any change journey, but isn't it? It's that kind of needing it now and, and the urgency of trying to get it now, you know, like the weight loss journey is the obvious example is, you know, everyone's looking for the quick fix, whereas realistically to create long-term sustainable weight loss is, is a journey. And um, it's that kind of, we work against ourselves, don't we? Yeah, there's no question about it. And it's a great example, you know, with weight loss, uh, oftentimes people would expect that what we're going to do is um, that, that I'm going to be working with them on, on calorie counting. And really, um, the really important role that a psychologist can play in the process is about helping them to identify the ways that they're not treating themselves well. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's really helpful to see that, you know, um, weight loss is so difficult because food is different than other drugs, of course, because, you know, we don't have to take other drugs. Yeah. And, we're and you have inund- to eat so often. You have to eat often and you're inundated with advertisements of people who are um, eating all these, you know, delicious foods that are, that are drugs. They do have an effect on the way that we think and feel. 
And so you've got to find some kind of balance. But the the point is in, in the psychotherapy, what we can look at is, you know, are you setting yourself up for needing that medication? Mm-hmm. You know, so just like someone might medicate, we can medicate in an unhealthy way with meditation. You know, even healthy things can be used in unhealthy ways. Meditation practice can be used as a way of detaching from the world. Yeah. You know, well, you see, our- I see the exercise, I work in exercise and you see there's a lot of people who look healthy from the outside, but actually exercise in a really unhealthy way. You know, there's, you know, it adds in a way to escape the thing that they actually need to really work on. Oh yeah. 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 And, and- you know, go go ahead. You can say well, something. what's really interesting in our world is that you get rewarded for that. You know, so if you if you are an unhealthy eater and you put on weight, you kind of there's a stigma that comes with it. There's kind of a shame. There's all that that stuff that comes alongside that. Whereas in our world, especially in this kind of you know social media world, is being an extremely fit person is is people think you're you get you get respect, you get rapport, you get um you know you get admiration. So you get admiration and all this positive stuff even though you may be doing a behavior that's actually unhealthy for you. And so it it draws people more towards it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And one, one signpost that people can use to identify this is compulsiveness. If you Mm, think of the word compulsive, it's the feeling of being compelled, feeling compelled to do something. And you know, people can be feeling compelled to exercise obsessively, you know, excessively. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think can... a good example of that is that when, like I, I was that when I was that I was that person myself when I was younger. I'm not anymore. I still exercise a lot, but when I was younger, if I got injured, I I couldn't stop. I you know I had does it compel you know and I just make my injuries worse. Whereas nowadays, if I get an injury, it's like okay, well here's what you're going to do. You know you can pull back, and it's it's a much healthier place. But you can that's an example of where the the person who exercises too much, with every sign's telling me they need to pull back physically but they can't emotionally. Yeah. 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 It's complicated. You know, people who have success in, in bariatric procedures um, who lose weight uh, have a much higher incidence of, um, of alcohol abuse. Oh, really? And Yeah. And so, you know, the, there's a complicated uh, dynamic going on there of a, a shifting of compulsive <laughs> behaviors. Some people, preserve the weight loss by becoming compulsive in exercise and in yeah. fitness which like you said you know looks really healthy and in some ways is healthy mm. but some ways can be not healthy can i ask as, as someone who's helping other people because i imagine you get your rock stars the people who kind of just jump on board and kind of everything you do they kind of take on board but i also imagine there's people where it's it's quite difficult to actually get into do and sustain the work uh what, what kind of percentage wise would that sit where would that sit and when you do get people who actually do the work and actually you know because let's be honest the work the change comes from doing the consistent work um what's the key to that from your perspective from the person who's trying to support these people yeah it's a it's a really good question i think i shouldn't attach a percentage to it only okay. because it's so um there's so many different factors, you know, if someone's coming and they've been abused um, since childhood, um, they're going to be real resistant to trusting somebody, anybody, including me. And so um, what we'll accomplish will have to be on a certain timeline that fits for that person. And um, I play a really important role in helping them tolerate that. Oftentimes, 
people are coming to me. So for instance, someone who struggles with anxiety and depression is, is demanding too much. They are um, reacting with intolerance to themselves and to other people. And that's why they're feeling you know, anxious, which is a form of nervousness and also sadness, which is a form of depression. And wouldn't it make sense that they're also gonna get down on themselves and on me and on the work and on the plan because they're tending to um, react that way, to not have the staying power because they're expecting things to fail them, mm. including themselves. Mm. And so what I've got to be doing is trying to head that off uh, and trying to encourage self-compassion and patience uh, and respecting the process. It can be difficult to strike that balance because I also have to be instilling hope and so the cheerfulness you might hear and the sort of encouragement you might hear that there's a plan that you can do this, that it's achievable, can um, have a kind of a, an opposite impact on some people. They can feel like, you know, I'm too pressured um, because they are fearing that they're going to fail. And mm. the more, more positive I feel about the program I'm offering, the more it could activate their feel of fear of failure. This will this will really confirm that I'm I'm inadequate as a person. So I suppose for yourself, you have to be very delicate, but also going back to that mindfulness, you need to be really aware of the nurturing that you're taking someone through. Yeah, I mean, it's been well known um, in my field for decades that the most powerful. Um, predictor of success in psychotherapy is the relationship between the client and the, the psychotherapist. So that's where it begins. It begins with me and that person um, having a connection where they feel like they can trust me to sort of, you know, get down in the mud with them and and sift through this stuff, figure it out. But, but it's really interesting because you think of all relationships, you know, that, that we would trust if we think of the relationships we have in our lives which are the strongest relationships that's often the strongest thing isn't it so as a as a therapist how do you build trust and I'm, again there's i'm sure there's a million ways you do it but you know like what's how do you approach building that trust with the people you work with yeah um it's a it's about being yourself it's about uh, making an authentic contact with another person um communicating your intentions really clearly, communicating that it's a safe place. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's about being clear about uh, what my you know, personal philosophies are uh, to the extent that it's relevant. I, I don't want to fill the space with myself and who I am, um, but to whatever extent it'll help the client feel safe, I do want to be responsive to any you know, curiosity they may have about that. So for instance, sharing humor, you know, you would think that a, a psychologist um, wouldn't be sharing humor because, you know, this isn't a place where we're coming for jokes. Well, that's not really true. It is a place where we're coming to make contact with another person. And one of the ways that you cope with the stresses of life is by maintaining a certain balance, you know, remembering that, you know, stresses are part of life, but so is pleasure. And we can model that in the therapy room. So yeah, we don't want to be spending the hour just, you know, joking around, but we do want to find humor in things because it models a way of living. Can I ask on a personal level then, because it's, you know, your, your job is a very important role and it's 
it's a lot of giving. Um, so how do you look after yourself? Because there's a lot of people, and, and not even necessarily just in your environment, but a lot of people who live in worlds where they give a lot. And sometimes that can actually be their biggest problem. But how do you actually look after yourself as in, because you are kind of giving a lot of yourself to helping other people? It's an important part of the, the training and the ongoing um, coping. You have to make time for play. Um, just like I tell clients, we we have to get a way to remember our perspective. And um, so finding my own joy, being physically, you know, exercising, um, getting out in nature is important. Um, and and play with other people, with having people in my life that um, I enjoy spending time with and things that I enjoy doing. Those are really important. I mean, for me, Art is important also. And so uh, just trying to be a whole person, but it, it can be difficult. You know, through COVID, um, it was very helpful to normalize the anxiety with people. And I continue to do that. You know, um, anxiety is something we're supposed to feel. Uh, and there are a lot of things around us that are threatening. That's really what anxiety is. It's a sense of threat. Mm. It, it protects mm. us from threats in the environment. And in our modern age, you know, we're not we're not worried about a bear coming and attacking us. Uh, usually, we're we're worried about you know, COVID or losing our job or you know the things that we worry about. But the the key, by the way, with regard to anxiety, isn't exactly that the bear is going to come and find me in my cave. It's that the bear is going to come and find me in my cave, and I won't be able to cope with that. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. the key in anxiety treatment is about focusing on on coping and yeah I, I have to maintain that for myself and my own life too I, I do the same work on myself that i do with clients mm. so so it's that in the situation that i'm facing that creates anxiety is, is learning to put the 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 tools and basically going back to trust really isn't it to, to trust that if that situation were to present itself i would know how to deal with it yeah, there are two questions I encourage clients to think about with regard to anxiety. The first is, what's the likelihood that the thing will happen? Nice. Because what we know from research is we way overestimate the likelihood that a bad thing will happen. Yeah. And, and for people with anxiety disorders, the percentage is crazy high. It's like over 90% of the oh, wow. things that they worry about never happen. Wow. Um, and so that's the first thing. What's the likelihood the thing will happen? And the second thing is what you said, if it does happen, how am I going to be able to cope? And so recognizing that there are ways to cope with, with these things. And like I said, I, I think it's very powerful for psychologists to be modeling that. Before I became a psychologist, I always thought um, that one thing that wasn't helpful about uh, a lot of mental health professionals is they give this impression that they could never have um, the problems that they talk with people about. Mm. And it just is not true. You know, mm. we, we struggle, we have human struggles, you know, and yeah. many of us see our own therapists. I mean, it's, it's typical that a psychologist at, at some point is going to be consulting their own psychologist just because it's, um it's, it's really valuable to have a different person rooting around in your head with you. Can I ask what you, so you said you've written a book. What's the name of your book? Oh, um, thanks. It's um, saving face without losing your mind, bringing mindfulness to your cosmetic procedure. 
So, so what, 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 why did you want to write this book? Tell, tell me the background of, of the influence on doing the book. You know, I work in LA. Um, not only is there a lot of pressure to look a certain way, and clients will be talking about that all the time, um, but there are also um, stresses that people encounter when they're deciding if they want to have a doctor help them, a physician help them um, with certain appearance goals that they have. And so people have come to me to talk about, um, you know, whether they're thinking of having a facelift or something done to their some part of their face or yeah. um, their body. Liposuction is really pretty common. Uh, and how we make those decisions in a healthy way, whether to, to have the procedure and then um, how to cope with the procedure is a big part of it. There's a lot of anxiety if you're going to have um, a cosmetic procedure, because one reason is the outcome is always to some extent uncertain, because it's to some extent yeah. always subjective. Yep. Yeah. What, what, can you talk to like, 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 I work in fitness, so I kind of get the image thing. Um, you talk about, you know, LA, and I totally get, you know, it's a Hollywood kind of environment. It, is it is it that much of a pressure? Is it is it quite a huge pressure? This kind of neediness for or or kind of pressure to have a, a certain kind of look or at least a level of look. Is that something that's really kind of kind of in people's mind? You know, I don't think there's any question that there is. I mean, when I have friends or family visit, it's like it's typical that at some point they'll say, "Wow, the people here um, just really do look different," and um, it's not that everybody is thin or everybody's had um, cosmetic work done, but you definitely do get a sense uh, that there's there's a there's a presence of that, and um, and I think there's a lot of pressure now everywhere uh, because of social media. Yeah. In in Los Angeles, in particular, a lot of people are involved in the entertainment industry, and um, whether they're in it or they're trying to get into it, um, appearance is you know very important. An important part of my book is um, where I cite some research out of Scandinavia um, involving older people who, uh, in um, uh, in case histories, that the the research was was case history work. It was qualitative. Um, this isn't about big numbers of people that they were surveying. These are individuals who were inter interviewed intensively. And what they found from these people is um, they said, you know, I'm not looking to look 25. Um, what I'm trying to do is preserve a certain way of interacting with other people. And we live in a world that tends to be ageist and so tends to attach certain beliefs about the appearance of age, like this person looks unhappy or they look angry, or they look tired. And because of that, uh, job opportunities may be impacted and social opportunities may be impacted. And so I thought that was, that was one of the things that really pushed me to write the book, that a lot of the people that I've interacted with in therapy, um, and also the, the people cited in this research, were not talking about wanting to look 25 when they were you know 60. They were just trying to remain relevant and active. But it is interesting that, and I'm sure they develop themselves in more than one way, but is that, that, is that they, how they see the main solution? 
Well, yeah, that's a really important piece. Um, of course, we don't want other people's opinions of us to be um, determinative of mm. how we treat our body. And yet, I wanted to write the book because I suspect, I am only you know suspecting here, I've never read anything about this, but my suspicion is that a lot of uh, psychologists like me um, would feel disinclined to write the book that I wrote because they would feel like uh, they don't want to appear to be encouraging it. Yeah. My feeling about it is, my purpose in writing it is that I'm respecting what yeah. people are choosing to do with their body because they've made an assessment of um, how the way that they appear has an effect on the life that they are living. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to, to respect people's decisions that way. So in the therapy, we examine it, you know, we look at it carefully and uh, I may help them to alter some of the plans that they've made, maybe, but oftentimes it's about um, finding a way to come to an acceptance of um, what they're doing and, and, and develop uh, some healthy or, or nurture the healthy beliefs that they have about it. Mm. What about when we think of the, you know, the youth, or the youth, when we think about, you know, the younger generation, you know, the, the, the teens and the early twenties who probably feel more pressure around the stuff because of the amount of social media they face nowadays and the expectation that brings into their life. If you were to talk to parents right now about how do you help your children manage this part of life, which they're probably the real first generation that's facing it in, in a much more extreme way. Uh, what would be the advice that you'd give in this area? That's a really good question. You know, in in talking uh, about um, who this book is directed at with with other people in, involved in the process of, of um, publishing this book, um, you know, the, what people would tell me is, well, this is mainly a book for old people, right? Mm. Um, and the fact is, there's plenty of research coming out these days, um, looking at how many young people, even recently in the in um, Singapore, um, I, I was reading an article about um, the issue of liposuction, especially, but other cosmetic procedures in teenagers. Wow! And so it really raises complicated questions. Um, when do when is it right um, to begin? doing this work. But the answer, uh, one answer is definitely that people are doing it. People are choosing to do it, uh, again, in, even in their teens, but it's really pretty uh, common for influencers in their 20s and 30s to be making decisions to change certain aspects of the way that they look. Some very famous people, in, in writing the book, I interviewed cosmetic surgeons uh, just to get more background. Um, and I learned a lot about the subtle work that um, celebrities, again, in their 20s and 30s, uh, affect their appearance, um, their their faces in particular, but also liposuction is, you know, very common, as I said. Um, so, so what advice would I give to a parent? Uh, I think you have to you have to be careful with this stuff. You have to be, um, I would suggest that uh, it'd be good for that teenager to talk with a mental health professional, to examine what's happening, 
that's um, causing them to want to change a part of themselves. This gets very complicated and very political and very controversial mm. these days around the trans issue. Yeah. Um, uh, so you can imagine it's it's about again compassion, self compassion, mindfulness. You know, just uh, trying to take a breath and uh, examine the plan and examine what's motivating the desire. We we live in interesting times, don't we? You know, like it's funny. You know, you talk about the kind of the tension in America right now a little bit earlier. Would you like you know the family stuff? And um, uh, it's interesting watching from a a Kiwi's perspective, kind of seeing um, just the 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 delicate nature certain people are. You know, the the tightrope it's almost people have to walk down right now. It's almost that takes up so much of our presence and how we have to live our life, Um, and it's. Yeah, I, I always think, you know, what's the best use of your mind space, you know? <laughs> uh, it, it can definitely be pretty challenging for a lot of people out there right now, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And it is, I, what I think of when I think of what you said, it's an interesting time. I think of the contradictions, you know, um, there's so much pressure, I think in part because of social media, to not make a mistake, to not misstep, to not seem bigoted or um, you know, prejudiced in some way. And yet, um, I've done some reading in the cosmetic surgery um, world, and you see this other weird kind of thing or contradictory uh, thing that happens, which is, for instance, you know, you can walk into a cosmetic surgeon's office and uh, in different places in the world where they specialize, for instance, in, in eye procedures, and the physician would just, you know, come right out and say, so do you want Japanese eyes or do you want Chinese eyes or do you want, you know, um, and, and in other parts of society, we would think, wow, that's, that's really racist. And in that doctor's office with that individual of whatever ethnicity deciding that they want to change the appearance of their eyes, um, it's, you know, perfectly acceptable and considered respectful. Yeah. So it is sort of contradictory, you know, yeah, we want to be affirming the way different people look from different cultures. Um, but we also want to be respecting on an individual level. If this person who is from whatever culture wants to change their appearance, you know, should they, if they're of sound mind, be able to change it and to change it in the particular ways that they want. And that's where that plastic surgeon would be coming from and saying, you know, yeah, I can give you an eye that looks like, you know, this culture or that culture, whatever you want. Yeah, well, yeah, again, we live in fascinating times, don't we? Hey, um, so if people want to get your book or people want to follow you or, or work with you, where, where do they go? Thanks. Uh, so it's uh, DR for doctor and then Alan Goodwin uh, on, um, on uh, TikTok and Instagram and um, YouTube. And um, my website is also uh, Dr. Alan Goodwin. Uh, dot com and yeah. I, I is your book on your website i'm just on your website right now where would they go to get your book uh, on- yeah you know, we've got to get a book page up on the website okay. and i think it is not yet because the book is coming out um in november this month okay. but okay. again the title is saving face without losing your mind maintain um bringing mindfulness to your cosmetic procedure and um it'll be most likely in the middle of November is when it's going to come out. And it really is directed at 
at coping with all sorts of changes in life. There's a heavy mindfulness component. And I talk a lot in the book about how we use therapy. Um, the context is for um, coping with all of the stresses that surround uh, deciding uh, on a cosmetic procedure. But really, I intended the book to be a tool for anybody who is, you know, uh, wrestling with the realities of change. And so the people who have read it have said, you know, really, I learned a lot about psychotherapy in the book. And I was really glad to hear that. I, I meant to communicate that. I've got a question for you. I, I've got a client I work with who's obese, um, obese and, uh, you know, quite a bit overweight and works hard, but has never really lost, the, the, you know, never really got to the place she needs to get to. And uh, she, she's always fighting between, should I get the operation or not? Would this book be good for someone like her? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I, you know, I only hesitated a, a second just now because, um, you know, you can imagine when you're writing a book like this, um, you edit out a lot of different choices. You have to make mm, choices. Yeah. And I had examples of stories of um, people who um, were uh, going through this process that you're describing your um, client going through. And, you know, of course, you can't you can't tell that person whether they're going to be happy with it. Um, but what tends to be helpful, I think, is to let the person know there are, you know, many, many people who have had those procedures and um, felt like um, any of the disadvantages that they've experienced have been outweighed by the benefits. There are people who feel differently about it, though. And the success rate is really dependent on the procedure um, and also the individual. Um, some procedures have a lot um, higher. Uh, I think they, I think they look at five-year uh, success rates because most people lose a bunch of weight soon after the procedure. But the question is, you know, three and four and five years later, is it maintained? Um, but you know, I know people uh, personally who, you know, would have said they would absolutely um, uh, do the procedure again because it it changed their life. So I don't mean to be a, a, a shill. I don't mean to be yeah. selling the procedures. It's just the reality for some people. And the reason I think it's, I'm so glad you asked it, is because from a psychological perspective, many of those people didn't have the procedure because they shamed themselves for their weight. They said, you know, if, if I were just um, not so lazy or not so uh, unmotivated or not so whatever, um, I would just do it. I would just lose the weight. I'm not one of those people who, you know, has to have a procedure in order to lose the weight. So they shame themselves for it. What's, what's also interesting as well, One th I, I, I have worked with a couple of people who have had the operation and luckily for them, because you talked earlier about how um, sometimes it can lead to them just look, you know, going to alcohol or, or you know, actually just using another negative way or damaging way to kind of deal with the thing that they really need to be dealing with. But two of the people I can think of right now, they, they basically said by getting the surgery, it made them realize it was never really about the food. It was actually this bigger thing that they needed to work on. One of the girls had lost a baby, uh, you know, pretty young, you know, maybe I can't remember exactly the age, but they lost a child very young and she just had never dealt with that. And once she had the surgery, she just realized, oh, jeepers creepers, I actually need to deal with this thing. And, and then she was able to. And so as much as she was much 
physical, healthier person, mentally she actually worked through the real stuff that she probably needed to be working through. And that's where so working with someone like you would ultimately be helping, you know, again, working on the right thing is probably the most important thing, isn't it? I think so. I mean, if what, what I say to people is I think it's helpful to look at food like any other compulsive behavior if it's a problem. If you think about it, whether it's gambling or sex or a drug or food or uh, anything that you do compulsively, there's a trip component to it. They are all trippy. In other words, they're all sort of taking us away. Uh, like going. Okay, nice. Okay. So it's an Not, escape kind of thing. Yeah, I don't yeah. use escape. I use leave because escape tends to activate people's um, sense of being um, criticized okay. as you know cowardly. You know. Yeah. But 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 we we leave. We go on a trip to get away. And you know, of course, anytime you go somewhere like to that that place where you know you go when you eat a jelly donut or when you take the drug of choice or when you gamble and you're real excited, you know, you're leaving somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so in the therapy, what we're looking at is, you know, what were you leaving and what you gave as a really good example of it, that pain that can be nascent and not even looked at because um, it's, you know, clouded over by, you know, not staying present enough to be willing to look at it. It's funny you say this because I played a band um, and we had an album release party of a couple months ago and there's a guy who's been really supportive of our band he's kind of come to every one of our gigs and i'm pretty sure he's a pretty high drug user and a big drinker um and he just stands there and there's just no presence there's no life you know and um i just i, I and I, I know i know i'm to say hello to i don't know him that well um but and i just i just thought wow there's you know that kind of idea of taking a trip is like he's, he's so disconnected from his life because he's so using these stimulants just to kind of exist and it was like I, again i can't be too, too judgmental i don't know the guy but i just it was just a presence i because i don't really hang around I'm, I'm in fitness you don't really hang around druggies and stuff like that so and, and i think i was got i have a drug history so i probably was probably that guy when i was younger um but just this presence of him was just as someone who's actually not even present in any way show perform in his life um it was just yeah it was just as you were talking about that it, it, he kind of came to my mind yeah and you're also not totally present with yourself right yeah you're getting yeah. You're leaving. Uh, if I leave right now, I'm not only leaving you, I'm leaving my experience of being with you, me with you. Mm. And so there's a rejection of you. There's a rejection of me. There's a rejection of me and you, you know? Yeah. Wow. So That's all nice. that stuff can be unpacked if the therapy's effective. What do you, well, well, here's a, here's a problem. What about the cost? Because, you know, like for someone like you, I'm, you know, I'm sure you charge a fair amount and I'm sure you're brilliant at what you do. But for unfortunately, a lot of people who, don't have the resource. Um, how did, what about people like that? Yeah, it's 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 really unfortunate. You know, different societies. I think you know um, uh, fund this service differently. Yeah. I mean, I part of my practice is a Medicare practice, and so okay. um, I I I love that. I see people who are um, in on Medicare because of disability or because of age. And it's a whole different kind of population I get to work with. Um, but yeah, you know, well, I think a good thing to say to encourage people is um, no psychologist is going to be helpful to everyone that they meet. Um, it's, it's always to some extent about, you know, a chemical uh, compound. You know, I am a chemical, you're a chemical, 
when we mix, we're going to create something and either it will be, you know, a, a positive thing or it, it won't be a constructive thing. And, and so you can find those chemicals that you combine with in a really positive way in trainees. If you go to um, a clinic um, and people are training, they're supervised and they may be, you know, very, um, they, they may have great raw talent and they may have great uh, supervisory help. And you may get, you know, really super effective psychotherapy. And on the other hand, you may meet with someone who's really experienced and it won't be, you know, uh, a successful connection. So it's always, to some extent, uncertain. But um, so you have to be open to, you know, sort of shopping. But uh, in terms of cost, I would just want to encourage people to um, be open to working with, you know, whoever you can find, because you, you never know where you're going to find uh, that person who's really going to be a, a great resource for you. And I think there's one other thing on top of that as well, is that kind of idea of shopping, because I, um, some people have one bad experience with someone that, you know, a therapist or something who's trying to help them and they close the door to the idea of that they could help. Um, and it's like all things, you know, not every shoe is going to fit every foot. And so it's that kind of thing that do shop around, do kind of spend some time trying to find a good fit for you because yeah, not everyone's going to be perfect, are they? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're all, it's our theoretical orientation is what we call it. And it's a function of our personality, but also of, you know, our philosophy as a professional, what kind of work we do. And yeah, it's, there's um, an, an infinite uh, number of uh, options when, once you start looking for professionals. And also, um, there isn't only one way that's going to work for you. So don't feel like you have to find the person that you feel most comfortable with and safe with from the minute you meet them. In fact, I, I had a client recently who um, was really funny. And in the first session, in the first session, she said, yeah, I saw your videos online and, you know, I thought, I thought you looked a little weird, but I'll get you to cry. It's a lot. Yeah. And I told, I told the person that recently and they said, no, I didn't say weird. I mean, you just look very serious. <laughs> <laughs> I have a funny story. I, I've, I've written a couple of books myself and there's a guy came up to me at gym and cause he was a pretty high level lawyer and he was a pretty intelligent guy. And I just didn't think he thought fitness professional was that intelligent. He goes, that comes up, he goes, have you written that book? Like, yeah, I wrote the book. He goes, but did you actually write it? And I was like, yeah, I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm impressed. I think it's a bit of a backhanded compliment, but we take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's hey, well, funny. thank you so much for your time. So, your website is again. Your website is uh, dr for doctor, no period after it, and then my name is Alan A L A N. Last name is Goodwin G O O D W I N. Doctor Alan Goodwin dot com. Okay, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, guys. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really interesting having a discussion, and keep up the good work you're doing. Thanks, Bevan. It's really, really nice meeting you. Thanks a lot. I really, really enjoyed that interview. I, I really enjoyed talking to Alan. Um, as I was saying before the interview, there were just some nuggets that he said that I, that I really connected with. So if you want to find out about Alan, you can go to his website, drallengoodwin.com. I'll put a show uh, link to it in the show note. Um, he has actually put on his website now his new book. It's called Saving Face Without Losing Your Mind, Bringing Mindfulness to a Cosmetic Procedure, which is really interesting. You know, like I don't live in a place where that's a 
big thing. Like, don't get me wrong, it kind of happens everywhere in the world, but you talked about being in LA and how there's that kind of pressure of image, uh, which is a really interesting interesting thing to think about. And, and let's be honest, it's become more prevalent in today's world, A, because we have options on how we can, um, can change and change, and I suppose influence our look um, and, and I don't have any really judgment on that I think it's your life you're an adult you can do what you want to do with your own body and face and, and stuff like this um, but yeah it's just really interesting interesting stuff so you can check out a new book on there as well um, yeah so Dr Alan Goodwin thank you very much for coming on the show that's pretty much today's show done and dusted again if you want to become a patron of my show go to bevanjamesisles.com click on podcast go to support me go through the process of becoming a patron Secondly, uh, my book, I Will Make You Passionate About Exercise. You can get that at passionaboutexercise.com. One thing I don't promote on this is my course. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm tripling the price of my course. Uh, the course is basically, so on the book, the book is kind of like, here's a journey and, and here's how you, the steps you take and, and here's what you need to do along the journey. Um, and it, it's, you can definitely, like the book's great, don't get me wrong, but it's a self-guided journey if you want to do it with the book. But what I wanted to do is also do a course that goes on top of that. So it's a course basically, it's like, I designed it to be like a weekly mentoring. So basically each week you get like a 20 to 30 minute video with me. Now it's automated where I guide you through all the baby steps in the book. So it's a much more handheld process through that journey of the baby steps in my book and um, I've been getting some feedback from some people who have bought the course and they're saying it's really great I got some feedback from a lady the other day she was saying it's, it's, it's teaching her so much not just about the exercise journey but just she's learning so much about her life through these journeys because basically I, I think one of the biggest problems in people's lives is they just don't work on themselves and you know in doing this book I, the book's basically this pathway and this guide and in the, in the course is kind of me guiding you and one thing I try to set up on the course is this idea of your weekly meeting is that kind of each week you're going to sit down you're going to watch a video of Bevan you're going to think about the next seven days you're going to take the steps in the next seven days which is building that framework of a love of exercise and, um, and she was just saying that the lessons I teach in this are obviously focused around exercise, but she's actually learning so much about how she can apply it to all areas of her life. Now, I'm actually putting the price currently, if I go to the website right now, if I go to the website right now, passionaboutexercise.com, um, currently if you want to get the course, um, the course is currently, you can do a one-off payment or you can do kind of different payments. So you can do like a 10, four, <clears throat> 10 weekly payments or uh, four monthly payments. So it's basically $400 New Zealand. So like if you're in America, it's like 250 bucks. Um, New Zealand dollars, <clears throat> 10 payments of 470, sorry. So it's basically like 180 bucks more if you do a weekly payment. Or for monthly payments of 417, we're actually tripling the price really soon. So it's actually going up to around about $1,100. And I'm going to be, and, and I'm not trying to do this to, to, to create urgency. We are just doing it because the demand's good enough for us to put the price up, which is really good. Um, but if you want to get it now, if you're listening to this right now, now you might be listening to this into the future, but if you want to get it right now at the cheaper rate, it's kind of going to be within the next seven days I'm going to be doing this. So I kind of think, here's what I'll do. I'll make a promise that I'm not going to put the price up. What's the date today? The date today is the... 14th this will be released on the 14th i won't put the price up on the course until the 23rd of november there we go so if you want to get my course basically it's me guiding you weekly videos oh, so much more than just that as well go to the passion about exercise 
www.thegreatcoachingmentor.com and you'll see at the top of the page you go get the course. Go through there and you'll see all the different modules that I have on the course and what you're going to be learning each step of the way. And then also check out the bonuses because I've got like interview series, I've got motivational strategies, you get the audiobook version of my book. There's also a Facebook group so and I jump on that as well. So if you want to get my course, seriously, you need to do it now because it's never going to be any cheaper than what it is right now. Anyway, that's pretty much it. Uh, the other thing you can do if you want to support my show is go on your podcatcher and give some feedback on the show. Give it, give it a review. Anyway, that's me for this week. I'll be back in a couple of weeks from now for your next episode of my show. And as always, keep being you. Mm-hmm.